Bible is an amazing book. And one of the fundamental insights that the Bible provides is that every person bears his image. Now, that takes a lot of different forms. And one of them is that we are able to take what God has created and then be creative with it. And so one of the things that a team recently did was they created these mugs that we were talking about earlier today, these mugs. Now, this has at least two purposes. One of them is the same as anything that we put our brand on. One of our hopes is, is that people are going to enter into a conversation. That's our hope, that we prayerfully say, hey, God, would you use this shirt, would you use this mug to, to get me in a conversation that can maybe help someone get one step closer to you? But there's another purpose that's far more obvious, and that is to hold our drinks, right? to put our hot coffee in there or our hot chocolate in there. Now, the reason I'm bringing this up here is I want to point out the importance of guardrails. We're in a series, if you're new here, um, we've been talking for the last several weeks about guardrails that we put around screens. And this device right here that, that a team of people created, it's got a built-in guardrail that keeps the, the drink where we want it to be. And I think almost everyone in this room can relate to a time where you had your drink where you want it to be and you knocked it over. And the drinks spill, spill all over something and messed it all up. Anyone have that experience before? All right. Okay, lots of times, right? Now, one of the tricky things about devices, about screen-based devices, the things that we've been talking about in this series, is that we're in uncharted territory with these things. And they're so much fun to bring just about everywhere. They are so useful. They are so practical. They are so portable. They're so entertaining that now screens are colonizing areas that they've never colonized before. And I think all of us can relate. There's times where something spills out of them somehow that we wish hadn't happened, that we wish we could figure out some better guardrails to put around these things. Well, last week, Pastor Jason talked about the content itself, the actual stuff that goes inside the device. He, he talked about some content guardrails. Here's a quote that I came across when we were thinking on these things. It says this, the same computer that a child uses to learn math or biblical history is now capable of bringing him or her images and words that cause incredible damage to their soul. Isn't that true? And so, we're, so we talked about how, how do we discern, you know, in our devices, how do we discern what content is helpful? It was a lot easier when it just came to kindergarten because in kindergarten we had milk break and we didn't have one of these, but we had these little cartons. Anybody else remember that? And you have those little cartons of milk. And as a kindergartner, I once encountered uh, chunky milk and I, I drank the chunky milk and I learned really quick to say, I'm not just going to drink anything that comes out of the container. And I learned what you got to do. You got to shake the thing. If it goes clunk, 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 you put that back in the box, which was really stupid because then someone else drank it. Right. But, but you learned, you know, you smell it, you taste it. You learn to say, I'm going to, I'm going to put some guardrails in place for the content itself. Well, today we're going to talk about our proper place guardrails. That's what we want to focus on today. Because you could take this coffee cup and, and put great coffee in it or great hot chocolate. And just by taking something that is good, but bringing it to the wrong place can also be messy. A couple weeks ago, we had those jumping trampolines out there, right? So imagine you got your cup of hot coffee and it's delicious coffee. It's good coffee. You go on the trampoline with your coffee. The, it's out of place. So it's good coffee, but it's out of place and bad things happen. Now, you take bad content in a bad place, and you really got some problems, right? So we're going to talk about proper place guardrails. And think about this before we even get started any further here. Think about what it could look like if our church family could get this right. 
I mean, use the illustration of this cup and, and the bouncing trampoline. Imagine if most people who aren't thinking about these things, they're out there bouncing around with their coffee and they're just getting splashed on constantly. And they see us, before we get on a trampoline, we set our devices down, we go jump and we have fun, and then we go back to our devices. Imagine if we could figure out some of that proper place stuff. Do you think some other people might start to ask us questions like, that actually looks like a really good idea. Could you tell me more about this whole thing that you've found out? Well, as I've been reading and researching, one of the things that we're trying to do is to find some best practices. And we're starting to see that there are some people that are starting to say, yes, there, there, there's some agreement that's starting to happen around proper place guardrails. Here's one quote that, that just says what many of these sources are saying. The American Association of Pediatrics, for instance, they have recommendations. They recommend keeping screen-free zones in the house, some areas where you just don't bring your devices. And one of those is a young person's bedroom, as well as they say you should have screen-free times, like during meals. They also recommend just one or two hours of entertainment screen time per day or, and zero screen time at all for children under two years old. A growing number of professionals are also recommending that the proper place for a smartphone or social media is not in the hands of a, someone under the age of 13. So there's a, there's a bunch of organizations that are starting to try to wrestle with this. Even if it's the right device, where's the wrong place? A resource that does a great job of diving into proper place, place principles is a book called The TechWise Family. I brought a couple extra copies. I don't know if there's any left. Um, I, I left them out there on that table. I had about six of them. Um, if you promise to read it and there's any left, please take one on your way home. It's a great book. We put it in your notes there. You can pick it up on Amazon, pretty, pretty reasonably priced. Here's what he says about technology and proper place. He says, proper place, a technology is in its proper place when it helps us bond with real people that we've been given to love, when it helps start great conversations, when it helps us take care of the fragile bodies we inhabit. Technology is in its proper place when it helps us acquire skill and mastery of the domains that are the glory of human nature, like sports, music, arts, cooking, writing. When it helps us cultivate awe for the created world that we're part of and responsible for stewarding, and only when we use it with intention and care. And then he goes on to say this. Take a look at this. This is huge. He said, if there's one thing I've discovered about technology is that it doesn't stay in its proper place on its own. Isn't that true? It, it just, it tends to creep into our lives in all these areas. And that makes sense because nothing captures your attention like light, movement, and color. What do screens produce? Those things. And they don't just produce those things. They're designed to not just catch our attention, but to keep it. Here's a quote from a 13-year-old girl. She said this, I've been on my phone more than I've been with actual people. My bed has like an imprint of my body. The pull to bring our devices everywhere, it's strong. It's strong. Because again, they're so much fun and they're, they're so entertaining and they're so portable. But let's talk today about not only what are some of the guardrails that we can put in place, but let's talk about why too. Well, we want to have those in place rather than just allowing these things to colonize wherever they want to colonize. Well, during this series, we've got a green insert that will be in your, in your um, bulletin. So I encourage you to take this out and we're going to get started. What this is, is an outline of what we're going to talk about today, as well as on the back, it's got some, some series that are coming up. So I encourage you to write this down. Proper place guardrails can help us avoid device-related decisions 
that we'll regret later. That we'll regret later. Now, in your notes, I, I have four different guardrails that we're going to talk about in a little bit. What I, we'll get to those later, but what I encourage you to right now is circle that word regret. Because that is a powerful word. That is a powerful, powerful word. It is not the kind of word that you want to have a lot of in your life. A lot of regret. Most of us, we've experienced a lot of pain in different times. Many of us have experienced the pain of broken bones or a broken heart or betrayal or pain of sacrifice or shattered dreams. Many of us have lost loved ones who are very close to us. Many of us have experienced these kind of pain and and, and more. But how many of you know the pain of regret has a distinct feeling, doesn't it? The pain of regret has a very distinct feeling. To know that you could have done something different and the pain would not have happened. That's a unique kind of pain. How many of you would like to avoid that kind of pain? Really? Eight of us. Nine of us. Let's try that again. How many of you like to avoid that kind of pain? All right. I'm glad to hear that because that's what we're talking about today. And this is a really big deal. You do not want to have the pain of regret if you cannot possibly avoid it. The pain of regret. In fact, that's by definition what that pain is. If you can avoid it and it happens, it's the pain of regret. And the reason I want to, again, say why we're talking about this, because our goal of this series is not to just get up here and have four weeks of fear and say devices are this or that. We're trying to be helpful. We're trying to be helpful. We're trying to say there's a target that we want to hit, and that target is happy and healthy and God-honoring. That is the target. And these are guardrails that are designed to help us get there. And you don't, if you've got tons and tons of regret, that really doesn't help with happiness or healthiness or God-honoring. So let's press into this proper place principle. And the passage of the Bible we're going to go to is 2 Samuel uh, chapter 11, verse 1. If you don't have a Bible with you um, at home, or if you don't own one, we'd love to give you one. We keep stacks of them there at the table. We encourage you to take one of those on your way out. If you don't see them there, we will make sure we get you one of those. So if we run out of Bibles, make sure you let us know. We'll give you one of those. Now, what we're going to look at in this is an example of when it wasn't done well. When it wasn't done well. The Bible both has some things that says, hey, do this because this is a good idea. It also has a lot of examples of people making really bad decisions. This is in that category. This is someone who did not put that proper place principle into action. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. But David remained at Jerusalem. In the ancient Middle East, spring was the time when kings went to war. It is not just testified to in this ancient document, but there's ancient documents from the Assyrians, ancient documents for the Babylonians that collaborate this. And fun fact, I didn't know this before I started studying this passage, the Roman god Mars is where we get March from. So evidently going to war in spring was a big deal for a lot of people um, back in the day. Spring was the time when ancient kings went to war in the Middle East. And what did this king do? He stayed home. He stayed home. This is the first mention of a leader of Israel sending off the troops and staying on the couch. And this was King David. This was a man who, as a much younger guy, 
He charged a giant. He ran towards a giant. So the author, guided by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is trying to tell us something here. It's setting up a narrative, and it's saying, hey, hey, this king is not where he should be. This will be important later. Before we continue on with the story, please write this down. Wise people avoid foolish situations. Wise people avoid foolish situations. David wasn't where he should have been. Wise people do the best they can to be where they should be and avoid where they shouldn't be. And here's what happened. Verse 2. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful. Now, Hebrew, the Hebrew has different words for beauty to describe different kinds of beauty. This specific word that they used in this specific passage is the word for, she looked amazing. She looked amazing. There will be times when you're tempted to do the wrong thing. They're going to come. And in David's case, this was a time where he saw this amazingly beautiful person and he should have looked the other direction. But he chose not to. He chose not to look the other direction. When you're faced with something that you know is wrong, that is a crucial moment. That moment when you first recognize to do this would be wrong, what you do in that moment is crucial. It is crucial. David chose what was foolish. The story continues on. Verse 3. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now, you can miss a whole lot here if you just keep reading and, and, and don't dive into this a little bit deeper. When you dive in a little bit deeper, at least for me, as I dug deeper, it seems to me that this is a rhetorical question. This appears to be a rhetorical question. This appears to be coming from someone who says, David, you know exactly who that is. Why are you even asking me this? Here's why I say that as, as you study the text. Her husband, his name is Uriah. Uriah shows up in the Bible two other places of David's list of mighty men. These were men. There were these 30 men who were called the mighty men. All right. And these people are elite. The king's going to know. He fought side by side with them. They are elite. One of them took on 300 men with just himself. Took on 300 guys. Another one took on a lion in a pit on a snowy day. This is the type of people that are in this elite force. Uriah was one of them. And you know who else is one of them? Not just Bathsheba's husband. This other guy. Her dad. Eliam was one of these mighty men too. And it gets even bigger than this. If you keep reading in the text and you look at some other texts, it appears highly likely that David doesn't just know Bathsheba's husband. She doesn't just know his her daddy, she also knows grandpa, Ahithophel or fell. She knows this other guy. He was one of the wisest, most trusted advisors in the kingdom. So when David's like, so anyone know who lives over there? They're like, well, I'm just going to take a shot in the dark, but I mean, David, he watched those guys from that roof of his house. He watched some barbecue in the backyard. He knows who these people are, Right. He knows this. At least that's, as I'm looking at the the evidence, that's what I see. But what does David do? Look what's happening here. There's going to be times when all of us are tempted to mislead people. 
There's always going to be times where all of us are going to be tempted to reveal less than we know and give a false impression in doing that. What you do when you're tempted in that moment is crucial. David doesn't tell the whole truth. He misleads, and that leads to this. Verse 3, So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived. And here's the only thing in this whole narrative that we have from Bathsheba. This is her only quote. Three words. I'm pregnant. Many of our English Bibles say that David took her. And that is a very good translation of the Hebrew. Very good. Because that was meant, that word was meant to reflect a warning that God had given earlier. When the people of Israel said, yeah, God, I know you're supposed to be our king and all, but we want a real king. God said, I can give you a real king. Here's what's going to happen. They're going to take. Kings are takers. If you ask for a king, they're going to take your sons for war. If you ask for a king, they're going to take your money. They're going to spend it on their palace. If you ask for a king, they're going to take your women. And the women are going to serve in, in, that, in that court. David had become a taker. And this is David. If you're not familiar with the Bible, this is a man who the Bible literally describes as a man after God's own heart. This is David, the bringer downer of the giant. This is David, the writer of content that appears in the Bible. This is a man chose by God to be king. This is a man anointed by the prophet Samuel. This is a man who is filled with the spirit of God. If David can make these mistakes, do you think we can? Yeah. Verse six. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah, the Hittite. And Job sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David said, so how's Job doing? And how are the people, how the people were doing and how the war is going? And David said to Uriah, go down to your house, wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah didn't go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why didn't you go down to your house? And Uriah's like, this is a trick question. This has got to be a trick question. This has got to be a test. Because this is David asking me this. He knows why I didn't go down to my house. But I'll play along if, if, if we're going to go there. This is David. This is a man whose legendary courage and commitment inspired our nation. This is a man who Israel's most elite warriors were willing to die for. He knows the answer I'm going to give, but I'll give it anyway. Verse 11, Uriah said to David, Well, the ark in Israel and Judah dwell in booths. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord, they're camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live, as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Israel was engaged in a holy war. Ark was out on the battlefield. Israel's army, they were in the trenches. Abstinence was an act of devotion in this situation to God, and it was an act of solidarity with his brothers. Uriah knew that David knew this. In fact, if we had more time, we'd go into 1 Samuel, and we'd see that David himself said something like this to a priest. David knows the code. He used to live by it. When David realized he couldn't get Uriah to compromise... He got him drunk. It's in the Bible. 
And Uriah still wouldn't compromise his convictions. One of my sources made this observation. Uriah drunk is more pious than David sober. And now you start to realize, oh, this is why the author included that Uriah the Hittite thing. Because a Hittite, they used to be the enemies of God's people. In fact, God's, David's descendants declared a holy war on the Hittites. And here is this guy that used to be an enemy of God, his people were. He's now the one standing for what's right. And the king of Israel is on this completely dark path. And he continues down it. Instead of being inspired by Uriah, he continues down the path. Let's jump to verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab, and he sent it by the hand of Uriah. In that letter, he wrote to the commander, set Uriah at the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him, that he may be struck down and die. This is a direct order to the general. And whose hand did that order go into? Uriah. Words don't do justice to the injustice here. The penalty for adultery, does anyone know what it was in in those times? It was death. So who deserved to die? David. And yet David is in such a dark place now that he writes the death warrant and he puts it in the hand of one of his mighty men, knowing that that mighty man has the integrity to not open this and go, ooh, I wonder what's inside And he carries his own death warrant and he hands it to a general. And when the general says, all right, Uriah, you are charging this section. You're going right into the battle. And this is a stupid strategy. And Uriah knows it. He doesn't question it because you don't question your king. So he charges. This is dark. This is dark. And if we had more time and we would keep reading, it gets darker still. As additional soldiers die as a result of David's order. As Ahithophel, this was fascinating, continue to read and track him what happened after this event. Her grandpa, that she was grandpa. He used to be one of the trusted advisors. You know what he'd do when there's a rebellion then? There's a rebellion that comes. He joins the rebellious folks against David and takes his wise counsel against him. And he ends up killing himself over all of this. And David and Bathsheba's child is another victim of all this. She, he, the, the child dies. And here's why the pain of regret is such a big deal. What could have prevented all of this from happening? When David saw something he shouldn't see, he could have just turned his head. And none of this would have happened. Are our decisions a big deal? They are. They are. When we look back, us talking to us now, when we look back, we're often going to realize that a journey that we went on that took us to a dark place could have been prevented by such a little thing. Just a moment, a really small thing. Parents, there are going to be a lot of times where we're going to be pressured to say yes and we know that we shouldn't say yes to a device-related thing. There's going to be a lot of times we're going to look back with regret if we say yes when we should have said no. And for everybody, regardless of your age, There's going to be times where you know before you click, before you send, before you open, before you engage, you're going to have that still small voice that says, don't do that. This is not right. And you're going to regret where that took you. 
I'd encourage you to write this down in your notes. Temptation is an inevitable reality that everyone must face. Isn't that true? That is just true, right? This is not arguable. Everyone is going to face temptation. Here's a choice we have to make, and there's a place to write this down too. Preparation is a choice that wise people make. Everyone's going to face temptation. Everyone. Wise people prepare. And so I brought a couple wise people here with me, the Bobs. They're really wise. Um, Sorry, I didn't have a Tampa Bay jersey. I didn't have a Tampa Bay jersey. All right, so here they are. Now, they're not behaving wisely right now because they're just one decision away from regret. One decision away. They're close to regret. There's nothing separating them from that. What if the wise Viking wearing, jersey wearing one of them, what if he does this? What if he puts guardrails between him and the decision? Doesn't that seem like a wise thing to do? So instead of that decision just being one small decision away, there's several decisions before you get to that decision. Doesn't that seem like a wise thing to do? So now let's circle back where I said we'd circle back to your notes where there's those four guardrails that I think are very good, proper place guardrails. Are these the only four? No, of course not. In fact, they had six. My original one that I threw away had six stripes, but I'm like, we're already gonna be tight on time. So let me bring it down to four. Every one of these four that we're giving you today, every one of these four are ones David had in, could have had in place and he blew through. Here we go. One of them, and these are all in your notes, helpful gatekeepers and support. David did not have healthy gatekeepers because when he said, hey, messenger, go do this thing that's really stupid, that they knew was really stupid, what did they do? They went and did it because that's the king's orders. Let's be smarter than that. Let's put gatekeepers in our life that are going to talk back to us and go, no, you don't want to be stupid. Let's put filters in place that we know will keep us from stuff that we know that we shouldn't look at. Let's do that. Let's, let's let people know, the right people know our passwords so that there's no secrets that we can hide like David hid. And, and there's great resources. We put a couple of your notes, online resources you can go to say, you know, if there's certain movies, if there's certain shows, if there's certain kinds of themes and content that I don't want to find myself watching, using, look ahead of time. Use these gatekeepers who are just going to present and say, here's what you would be looking at. There's all kinds of helpful gatekeepers that can say, hey, going up on the roof right now is not a good thing to do. All right. Number two, this one, sacred and smart spaces. Let's start with sacred spaces. Imagine how the story would be different if David, when he got kind of bored and he started walking around, instead of going to the rooftop, what if he went to the chapel? One of the things that I admire um, one of the many things I admire our partners down in Juarez, uh, the director is a na- guy named Adam. And when war broke out in the city, he has a really tiny house. What did he do? He turned one of those rooms into a prayer room, a sacred space. He put a cross in there and he put some pillows to kneel on and, and, and he has Christian music playing constantly. So when the crazy world around him kept getting crazier and crazier, he had a place, a sacred space where he could go and focus. Now, not a whole lot of Sources are talking about sacred space, but almost all of them with best practices, they're saying, get smart spaces. That TechWise book, chapter two is worth the price of the book when they talk about smart spaces. Be smart. If you are trying to eat well, you don't want to have cookies and candy and all that kind of stuff all around you, right? You want to make the easy choice easier, the hard choice harder. What if we did the same thing with our spaces? 
they write this in the book, in the TechWise family. Fill the center of your life together, the literal center, the heart of your home, the place where you spend the most time together with the things that reward creativity and relationship and engagement, push technology and cheap thrills to the edges, move deeper and more lasting things to the core. If you do only one thing in response to this book, I urge you to make it this, find the room where your family spends the most time and ruthlessly eliminate the things that ask little of you and develop little in you. A huge win for most of us would be to figure out where those devices don't belong, push them to the edges. Number three, another huge guardrail, an asset that could be in our lives, trusted truth tellers and inspirational examples. David had these in his life. Uriah, inspirational example. And then there was this other guy named Nathan who comes right after this account that we looked at. And Nathan calls the king out. And says, what you did was wrong. Actually, you got David to realize what he had done was wrong. Imagine this. Imagine how different everything would have been when David was on the roof. He sees something he shouldn't see. He thinks thoughts he shouldn't think. What if he would have went down and said, Nathan, come here. Private counsel. I saw something I shouldn't have seen. I'm thinking thoughts I shouldn't be thinking. Would you pray for me? And would you remind me of the 10 million reasons why I don't do what I want to do? To have people like that in our life, it's so key. It's one of the many reasons I'm so pumped for small church. To get in these rooms together with other people and we can just talk and we can be real and we can build those kind of relationships where we can say, remind me of the 10 million things that I know I don't want to do. And learn some good things that are positives. That's why we have our youth groups set up the way we do, our kids' church set up the way we do. So, so, so important. All right, number four. If you've been tuning out, tune in. This, this is key. This is the key. It's going to sound like Christianese. That's why I'm scared. That's why I'm asking you to tune in because this is not Christianese. This is, the ce- this is central to everything. And that is to have spirit-guided and spirit-empowered decision-making. When I was studying 2 Samuel 11, I consulted about 10 different biblical resources and I came across one thing that none of the others said. It was this. It said, when a holy people fall into manifest sins, faith and the Holy Spirit have left them. Caused me to do a double take. And I started thinking, why am I reacting to this? And then, and I went back to the text and I'm like, Oh, that, that describes what happened. That describes what happened. It's a really interesting insight. As I was rereading first and second Samuel, I came across something that was said to the King that came before David. What was his name? Someone know? King before David, Saul. Okay, this is something that happened to the king before David, a man named Saul. This, this is by this a prophet named Samuel, and he's, he's, he's saying, Saul, this is going to happen to you. He says before your king, he says, the spirit of the Lord will come on you in power, and you will prophesy with them, and you'll be changed into what? A different person. Those of you who know the story, was Saul changed into a different person? Yes, he was. He became a different person. And here's what terrified David. Because David got to see this up close and personal. He saw Saul get changed to a different person. You know what else he saw? He saw Saul get changed back. He saw the Holy Spirit leave Saul. He saw the presence and power of God leave him. And now in this moment, as he's being confronted with Nathan, he's realizing, look what happened when I wasn't walking with the Spirit. Look what I was capable of. The depravity I was capable of. This room is filled with people who can testify 
to moments in our life where we yielded our life to God and something changed within us. Our hearts changed and we became passionate for the things of God. We were convicted and we walked away from things that we had been walking with. Where we began to know things we didn't, couldn't have known and do things we couldn't have done. And I would imagine almost everybody, in fact, I'll put this disclaimer, I'm going to say everyone, if we're honest, can also recognize how easy it is to change back and to no longer listen to that voice. The best guardrail of all is to welcome the power and the guidance of the Holy Spirit into our lives on a daily, moment-by-moment basis. It is the Holy Spirit that makes us willing to do what's right. It's the Holy Spirit who points us down the right path. It is the Holy Spirit who warns us we're getting too close to a line that we shouldn't cross. It's the Holy Spirit who convicts us when we do cross the line. It's the Holy Spirit who reminds us of God's amazing grace when we step over that line and invites us to come home. And each of us has a choice to make every step along that journey, moment by moment. Are we going to be foolish enough to follow our cravings, our cravings to be accepted, our cravings for approval, our cravings for entertainment? Or are we going to say, Holy Spirit, you guide me? Practical example. You come into a room, and there's something on the screen that you know isn't right. Let's say that happens. Or you're on your screen with other people, some kind of thread, and you're seeing something that you just know isn't right. In that moment, what do you do? Because moments matter. Do you go with the craving to be approved of, the craving to be accepted, the craving to be entertained? Or do you say, Holy Spirit, I need you right now. You know my heart and you know I'm tempted. Would you tell me what to do? How do I honor God in this moment? Boy, if we had time, you know, if we had an unlimited amount of time, it'd be interesting to have some people come up and just share times where they look back on regret when they didn't listen to that voice and they went with the crowd and they went with what they knew it was wrong and what happened when they did. And I want to say one thing to the teens before we transition out of this here. And teens, I don't say this lightly. I, don't, I try not to use these words unless I really am convicted of them. But teens, I think we have a word from the Lord for you. Last night, I felt like I was supposed to say this to you guys, so much so that I asked them to change the slides for today and put these up on the screen. Let me read them just as I wrote them down last night. God will honor your choice to honor him even if it doesn't look like it in the moment. Losing the wrong friends and opportunities could be one of the best gifts God could give you right now. Well, I want to encourage everyone, not just our teenagers, to paint the target happier, healthier, God-honoring lives and to look for guardrails that can help us to get there. And here's the last thing I want to encourage us to write down before we start to bring this here to a close. That is this. This is so important. The gospel reminds us that God grabs hold of those who reach out for him. The reason this is so important to remember this, that God grabs hold of those who reach out for him, is we don't serve a God who watches us crash through a guardrail, starts falling off a cliff, and goes, you deserve that, even though we deserve that. He's like, come on, come on, grab hold. 
And you can put your foot on the accelerator as you crash through those guardrails, or you can turn to a God who welcomes you back home. And what we want to close with today is I want to invite Mary to come on up, and she's going to read something. I don't know how much you know about the construction of the Bible, but there is some raw stuff in there, including what we call Psalm 51. This Psalm 51 that Mary's is going to read right now, this, this is David's cry after he was confronted and his light bulbs came on. He recognized what he had done. He recognized the severity of that thing. And so he wrote down these words to God. And these have inspired people. You're going to see some stuff in there that is just for David, but these are words that many of us, most of us, if we're an authentic follower of Jesus, we can grab onto and go, that's me. I need to pray this as well. So when Mary's done reading that, what we're going to do is we're just going to strip everything away. In fact, would you be able to see the words if we turn off the lights now? I think we try? So. so once you hit the lights, we're just going to strip everything down after that. And we're just going to put a simple tune to some of those words. And we're going to give you an opportunity then when she's done to pray those words through a song. So Mary, thanks. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion, blot out the stains of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. For I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I've done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me is just. For I was born a sinner, yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. But you desire honesty from the womb, teaching me wisdom even there. Purify me from my sin, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back my joy again. You have broken me. Now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. Then I will teach your ways to rebels and they will return to you. Forgive me for shedding blood, O God, who saves. Then I will joyfully sing of your forgiveness. Unseal my lips, O Lord, that my mouth may praise you. You do not desire a sacrifice, or I would offer one. You do not want a burnt offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and penitent heart, O God. Look with favor on Zion and help her. Rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will be pleased with sacrifices offered in the right spirit, with burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls again will be sacrificed on your altar. Let's pray. Father... There's some words in there that were just for David and you, but there's sure a lot of words on there that go to all of us. So Holy Spirit, we pray you descend on this place right now and do what my words can't, and that is to speak right to the hearts and minds. Help us to pray this to you right now. Father, we pray a prayer of thanksgiving for your Holy Spirit. Help us not to reject this gift. In Jesus' name, amen.